0: Welcome to The Common Rounds, medical education for medical students by medical students. We'll be finishing Neurology very soon, so just as we head to the end of Neurology, we'll finish off with two episodes on eye diseases. The first one, strictly speaking, eye diseases, because I'll be talking about different diseases that affect the eyes, and in the second episode that will follow from this, will be more more of the internal structures, in, in terms of eye pathology, in terms of eye movements and neurological defects. So in today's episode, I'll be covering any patholo- um, some pathologies that affect the eye the anatomy of the eye as it is, that includes things like refractive error and infections. But just to start off the episode, I'll quickly talk about the anatomy of the eye. Um, and it's always a good idea to sort of have a look at the anatomy because it's difficult to describe it just through audio. Uh, the, the layers of the eye from the anterior to posterior uh, it starts off with the cornea. And just posterior to the cornea would be the anterior chamber which is filled by a- aqueous humor. The cornea is continued by the sclera which is a white part of the eye. And, and together the cornea and sclera form the outermost protective layer of the eye just posterior to the cornea uh, is the anterior chamber which is which is occupied by aqueous humor and just posterior to the anterior chamber would uh, uh, posterior to this chamber would be the iris and the pupil the iris controls the size of the pupil the size of the iris is controlled by now the ciliary body which is um, at the ends of the iris so the cellular body is con- continued by the choroid um, which provides the blood and nutrition to the, the structures of the eye just posterior to the iris would be the posterior chamber and just posterior to the to this chamber would be the uh, the lens which controls the refraction of light that comes into the iris to the pupil in, into the rest of the eye posterior to the iris would be the vitreous chamber occupied by vitreous humor and all the way to the end would be the retina way, which is the primary photosensitive um, receptors. The fovea centralis, or the macula, is the region of the highest density of photoreceptors. And the optic disc is also seen at the posterior most region of the eye, where ganglion cells of all the photoreceptors merge together and take the signals back through the optic nerve. So without further ado, let's talk about refractive error. And just with some definitions to start off with, ametropia is a state of having no refractive error, whereas ametropia is a state of having a refractive error. Ametropia is divided into myopia, which is short-sightedness, that means people who suffer from this condition see things that are close to them fine, but their long distance is affected. That's why they're short-sighted, they can only see things that are short-sighted, and it's a very common problem, in fact. And on the flip side, hypermetropia is long-sightedness. So in myopia, the refractive error means that the uh, light rays fall short of the retina, they converge just before the just before the retina, and hence the image isn't formed perfectly. On the same vein, hypermetropia is long-sightedness, that means patient who suffer from this condition can see things far very well but their near sight is affected and the reason for this is uh, that light rays are focused behind the retina now a very important distinction has to be made between hypermetropia and presbyopia whereas presbyopia is a non-refractive error where the lens fails to accommodate light rays coming from a distance and this is more age-related hence while they do pretty much the same thing, presbyopia and hypermetropia are different in that presbyopia age-related condition. The pathophysiology of refractive errors is not 100% clear. I'm just going to be brushing over the basics. This is diagnosed by recognition of images and usually by reading out alphabets from a distance and then compare it with what a person with normal eyesight will be able to see. Following this, you're given a score with two numbers as a sort of fraction. The distance at which the patient was able to see the image is placed in the denominator. The numerator is the distance from which a normal person would have seen the same image. So essentially 20-20 vision means that what the person could see at 20 feet, a normal person can see at 20 feet as well. And if the person has an eyesight of 20-10, what they can see in 20, a normal person can see at 10 feet. So their eyesight would be worse than what would be considered normal. In reality, most people who do not have um, refractive errors have better eyesight than this. Um, Legal blindness is defined as 20 over 400, which means what this patient can see at 20 feet, a normal person can see at 400 feet. Now, refractive errors are very common and a third of people above 40 in the US and a fifth of people in Australia above the age of 40 um, suffer from this condition. And the treatment is uh, generally with corrective lenses. So myopia is treated with concave lenses, which allow the light rays to come and meet uh, a bit further away from what they normally do. And hyperopia is treated with concave lenses, which are convergent. They bring the light rays closer um, earlier so that it comes and focuses in front of the retina rather than behind it. Uh, And more recently, well, uh, it's been there for quite a while now, surgical correction through laser treatment, Um, more commonly known as LASIK, uh, is also an option for, for correcting refractive errors. Now let's talk about um, strabismus, which is a misalignment of the eyes in a, either an axial or a torsional. The condition is isotropic if the deviation is inward, um, that's more so the medial surface of the, of the plane. Exotropic if the deviation is uh, outward, so temporal, that's more lateral. Um, hyper is deviated upwards and hypo is deviated downwards. The risk factors for this condition, uh, generally family history, people with a family history are more likely to get this condition. Um, low birth weight, refractive errors and maternal drug use during pregnancy. And is caused by several different things, but um, which we can divide into primary and secondary like a lot of other conditions. In primary strabismus, this could be a result of nerve palsies, a uh, congenital nerve palsies, or weakness paralysis of um, fa- facial muscles, which is re- referred more commonly as Morbius syndrome. Congenital problems in the brain regions that um, encode for these uh, eye movements are also possible. Uh, and that's demonstrated in Duane syndrome. The other primary causes as well, but I'm just brushing to them now Um, secondary causes like botulinism from the spore forming bacteria clostridium botulinum and conditions such as julian barre or uh, multiple sclerosis infections can also uh, result in strabismus like um, orbital cellulitis which i'll talk about in a few minutes meningitis or uh, poliomyelitis and several other infectious diseases Ambilopia is a reduction in visual a- uh, acuity in early life caused by abnormal visual development. It occurs in 1-4% to 4% of children and uh, early detection is important because then intervention can be given to correct this problem. It can affect one or both eyes and usually results from disturbances early in life. It can be divided into three different uh, causes. One one is strabismic. So it's when um, due to strabismus, the cortex receives two different images and one of them is uh, actively suppressed. So because of neglect uh, of one visual pathway, it starts to atrophy and It's not very common and only occurs in constant strabismus with um, no alterations in the visual fields that are preferred by the patient. Um, Refractive causes can also cause um, amblyopia. So uh, similarly, two images are presented due to a refractive error and one is reduced because of neglect and disuse of that visual pathway. Similarly, deprivational amblyopia, which is very rare, um, happens in a disruption of the uh, visual field completely in conditions such as um, congenital cataract or ptosis, corneal opacities, and hemorrhage into the eye. Screening for these conditions is very important and it takes seconds. And screening is for conditions like catar- congenital cataract or uh, retinoblastoma. Now, the next condition I'll talk about is dacryostenosis, which is a blocked nasolacrimal duct. The lacrimal gland is located in the superior lateral uh, region of the eye and produces tears that sort of wash the eye, the front of the anterior portion of the eye, and collect onto the interior uh, inferior surface. Then that drains into drains through the naso nasolacrimal duct into the inferior meatus of the uh, nasal cavity. That's the reason why when a person cries, the, uh, you tend to get a bit of sniffling because the nose starts running uh, as the tears start to drain through into the nasal cavity. The duct is formed during embryonic development, and as the this canal sort of gradually burrows through, congenital nasolacrimal duct obstruction happens because of um, a possible incomplete canalization. It can be normal, and uh, a lot of children undergo spontaneous resolution uh, within six months. It manifests as cr- um, this sort of uh, constant tearing and debris just getting stuck into the eyes if, uh, due to failure of drainage um, to the nasolacrimal duct. And these the contents of the uh, blocked duct can be sort of exudated and felt if you palpate the region where the nasolacrimal duct normally is. Um, you can diagnose this by using fluorescent stain that doesn't drain. So once you put it into the eye and don't let it um, fall out to the cheeks or the lateral surface of the eye, um, if there's no drainage into the nasal canal, it's suggestive that there is a Obstruction. The treatment generally would be to observe, to allow spontaneous resolution, um, and avoid surgical intervention. But in a select number of children where the nasolacrimal duct does not open yeah, spontaneously, open um, probing may be required, and in some cases a stent might be needed to be put in so it doesn't close again. Surgery to open this duct is also an option. And now we can move on to. Uh, briefly discuss diabetic retinopathy, which is a very common microvascular cause of visual loss. And because of the prevalence, because of the fact that the prevalence of diabetes is increasing, we're more likely to see this condition. Um, the prevalence of this condition to increase as well. Most patients have no symptoms until the absolute very end when it sort of just become uh, sort of just prevails. And the progression can be very rapid. And because of these two factors, it's very important to screen um, people with diabetes for the progression of their diabetic retinopathy. Now, the formation um, diabetes also has an association with an increased formation of cataracts. And there are two mechanisms in which diabetic retinopathy manifests. Um, there's a proliferative one, proliferative one, um, which is a result of neurovascularization as there's hemorrhage in the pre-retinal and um, vitreous areas of the eye. Uh, as a result, fibrosis occurs and then occasionally, um, eventually um, the retinal hemorrhage would result in uh, retinal detachment and there's a non-proliferative uh, mechanism where a combination of nerve fiber infarcts, uh, microaneurysm, microthrombi all uh, result in macular uh, edema, which eventually result in thickening of the macular region of the uh, eye, which if you may remember, is the region of highest density of photoreceptors. In people with chronic hyperglycemia, there's an impaired autoregulatory mechanism in uh, retinal vessels, and uh, as a result, because of shear stress, you get uh, vascular damage, uh, which results in secretion of pro-angiogenic factors like vascular vascular endothelial growth factor and uh, can also result in macular edema um, in the retinal capillary regions. Accumulation of advanced glycated end products in the extracellular fluid um, seem to have a reaction with uh, reactive oxygen species, which causes vascular inflammation again. And as we've already discussed, microthrombi Causes occ- uh, occlusion of capillaries, which um, eventually lead into inflammatory reactions with um, growth factors being released, uh, resulting in neo near, near near revascularization, as um, we've already discussed. Now, the risk factors of uh, developing diabetic retinopathy include the duration and the control of diabetes mellitus and um, associated r- risk factors of. diabetes, uh, which include hypertension and smoking, which independently also increase the risk of um, suffering strokes and microthrombi. Treatment of diabetic retinopathy, the mainstay is uh, in the prevention by preventing, um, by sort of treating the risk factors, um, using anti quitting smoking, lifestyle factors, more exercise, proper diet, uh, and controlling the hyperglycemia with adequate um, diabetes treatment. Very interestingly, um, vascular endothelial growth factor inhibitors like bevacizumab uh, have been shown to have a, a positive effect on prevention of um, the development of diabetic retinopathy.